I'm sure people will be very happy to get a big, fat, beautiful check, and my name is on it. Oh, yes. They'll be delighted. Happier still if you didn't allow banks to steal it from them, but, you know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, and yes, we stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe for your listening convenience on the internets, even during a pandemic, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com with another edition of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Radio to Quarantine By. Or as some may call it, Radio to Panic By. But we try to not... <laughs> we try, try not to make you panic. We try to we make try. sure you are informed, fully informed. We do, and of course, that leads to panic. Uh, anyway, <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, we've got a bit of good news, good voting news for you today. From a state where you might not expect any such good news. That's coming up in a little bit. But first, the incredibly grim economic indicators continue to pour in today, even as the administration and I believe the corporate mainstream media continue to underreport the true gravity of the situation that we are now facing in this country and indeed across the globe. I. I take absolutely no pleasure, honestly, in in pointing this out, but I think that it continues to be a necessary counterpoint to the business as usual, if slightly more alarming than usual, but overall something that we'll be able to pull out of as usual mentality that seems to be gripping, of course, the denialist White House, but even many in the corporate media, particularly in the financial world. That, as Donald Trump was once again announcing today that, oh, this is going to be fine. We're going to get back to business as soon as May 1, maybe even earlier. We'll leave it up to the governors. It's all up to them. I'm sure everything is fine. Nonetheless, the grim indicators continue to blast us each day like an out-of-control fire hose. Yesterday, we reported on the worst decline, plummet really, of retail numbers on, on record for the month of March. Industrial output collapsed during the same month by the largest amount since World War II. 
And that was a month where retail establishments in March were largely shut down for only about half of the month. April will be worse. Today, we learn that 5.2 million Americans filed for unemployment during the week ending April 11. It was the fourth week in a row where jobless claims topped 1 million, which, by the way, has never even happened once during the more than half a century since such numbers have been tracked. The previous record for jobless claims in one week was 695,000 back in 1992. With today's numbers, the total reported to be newly out of work over just the past month is nearly 22 million, suggesting that all jobs gained, all jobs gained since the 2008 Great Recession are now gone. I'm not talking about just jobs gained since Donald Trump took office, but all jobs created since the depths of the Great Recession more than a decade ago with economists now estimating the unemployment rate to be about 15%, which rivals, yes, the Great Depression. At the same time, the meager programs put in place by Congress and the president in response have themselves been either collapsing or failing, take your pick, to mitigate much of this disaster. One of the major programs built into the CARES Act, that was the Relief Act passed by Congress to try and mitigate disaster for individuals and small businesses, which is considered to be those with fewer than 500 employees, uh, is called the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. Well, today, the Small Business Administration, which is nominally in charge of the program, announced that the $350 billion appropriated by Congress in the CARES Act for the program has already run out just a week and a half or so uh, after it opened. No more applications, even those made by those who filed on day one of the program, will be processed. Sorry, small businesses. Apparently, you'll need to lay off even more workers in the weeks ahead with the already Great Depression-era unemployment numbers expected to continue to rise in the week ahead in the bargain. At the same time, millions have yet to receive their paltry $1,200 payments from the CARES Act, which, by the way, are not actually paltry at all for those who desperately need cash, any cash at all, but paltry for the very real needs that many Americans are facing and will be facing in the days and weeks ahead as the numbers continue to spiral downward. Many of those who have received their checks, by the way, have not received as much as they were promised, with many reporting today that the $500 per child payments have not shown up for those who have received payments from the government. Many are missing those payments, those $500 per child payments. That, while checks being snail mailed to many Americans, may be delayed even further because Donald Trump wanted to have his name printed on them. And as the New York Times editorial board noted last night in their editorial headlined, Stop Dawdling, People Need Money, the Trump administration has also informed banks that they can withhold a portion of those federal payments from customers to cover unpaid fees and debts. Congress gave the Trump administration the authority to prohibit banks from doing so, and senators from both parties have urged the administration to act. But the Treasury quietly informed banks last week that it would not tie their hands, according to a recording obtained 
by the American Prospect. That report at the American Prospect, cited by The Times, was by our old friend David Dayan, financial investigative journalist and executive editor of the American Prospect, who has been uh, reporting at the head of the curve on his uh, in his uh, daily unsanitized column and newsletter since this crisis began. And he joins us as he has been regularly once again right now. Oh, Mr. Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How are you? Don't ask. So <laughs> I, I'm uh, listen. I'm glad the uh, the New York Times has noticed uh, your crucial work over at the Prospect, and I know you you've got a new scoop along related lines regarding what banks are now doing with those twelve hundred dollar payments that are supposed to be going to individual Americans to help them pay rent and mortgage and put food on their tables. Uh, so I want to ask you about that in a moment, but. Mm-hmm. David, am I overselling just how bad this is likely to get for the economy and the American people uh, who are counting on it? I, I feel like I'm giving horrendously dark and sort of alarmist news to folks. I don't want to, but I'm you know, doing so based on real numbers and facts that I'm seeing out there versus the sort of happy talk, this will all be over soon sort of discussions that I'm, I'm, I'm hearing uh, from many, both in the government and the media. Am I overplaying uh, this? Am I an alarmist, sir? Well, I mean, the economy is, has been put into an induced coma, and uh, it's been put that way for a, a good reason. Otherwise, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people would die if they were allowed to freely mingle and go to every event uh, whether it was mm-hmm. a restaurant or a, a ball game, that they normally would. So uh, the only way to stop that is to, A, get down the outbreaks that we have right now, mm-hmm. and then, B, put us in a situation with massive testing and contact tracing to isolate anyone who, who contracts the disease and make sure we know everyone that they associated with and have them isolate and uh, that, that's really the only way that we're going to uh, uh, keep, keep a lid on this until there's a vaccine. And we're not moving in that direction. Testing has mm-hmm. gone down uh, for the last three weeks. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you can say we're going to reopen the economy, but a large segment of the American people aren't going to willingly go like lambs to the slaughter back to a restaurant if they expect that there is an outbreak on that the government doesn't have a handle on. So even you see business executives saying to Trump, you can't do anything with this until you get massive testing in place. And we're just, we just don't have that right mm-hmm. now for a variety of reasons. So uh, the, the, the economic pain and the public health uh, the hazard will continue until such time as we get our act together. And, and you know, that, that time has not uh, yet been upon us. It's not upon us, and it doesn't seem to be anywhere to be seen, as you noted, particularly when it comes to testing, that that is going down. That needs to be increasing everywhere for us to even have a chance to come out of this. And if we, therefore, don't come out of it because we can't, it seems like the numbers that we have seen over the past month are going to continue to compound and get worse and worse and worse. I don't see anything sort I mean, of what, getting what better. You'll see, what you'll see if uh, this continues for weeks and weeks and months and people are still inside is just closures of businesses. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're, some businesses are shuttered. Uh, they're looking 
CARES Act money, the, the PPP loans you mentioned, they're, uh, they're trying to figure out a way to stay alive. Uh, they'll just close. Uh, if, 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 if it's months before they can mm-hmm. open, there, there were some statistics that Derek Thompson at the Atlantic put out there based on a survey of businesses, and it was something like 60% of businesses would close in the retail sector mm-hmm. or 70% in the restaurant sector. Those aren't exact numbers, but they're mm-hmm. in the ballpark of what the, they were looking at. So that, that is absolute economic devastation. And, and, and that's not something that you can easily come back from when you throw open the doors. If people can't stay in business right now, they're not going to be able to go back into business when everything opens. So my view is every sort of ounce of federal power needs to be put into those structures that need to be in place to reopen the country. And that uh, involves massive testing, in my view. So is that an answer uh, to my question about whether I'm being uh, overly alarmist here? Uh, Am I being? Well, I know it's important to you whether or not you're alarmist. (laughs) That is the most important thing, really, in all of this. Well, because I don't want to be alarmist. (laughs) I feel like uh, I don't want to be. I know it's really depressing to hear. I'm trying to not be. I think you're being factual and appropriate. I mean, this is... This is a more rapid loss of economic activity than we saw in the Great Depression. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this theory out there that we're just going to shut off the lights and turn them back on again, and everything (laughs) will be all right, and there will be a V-shaped recovery, Uh that everything that went down will go back up at the same rate. And that's only true if we can actually keep keep things open and, and allay people's fears. And uh, what, what is probably more likely is that Trump will reopen the country, quote-unquote, on May 1st, and then we'll see new outbreaks, and there will be waves of up and down and up and down uh, right up until uh, such time as a vaccine not only is, is found and produced, but actually gotten into hands of people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're seeing right now with these checks and, and all this other stuff yeah. that it's one thing to approve something, but it's quite another thing to get it across to hundreds of millions of people. And that vaccine you're talking about, from every expert, they say, oh, we're talking about a year, a year and a half right. at the earliest. That's right. That's right. So, so you know, I mean, I saw something uh, today where in Los Angeles uh, there's an expectation that there will be no large gatherings until 2021. Facebook has, has, has canceled all its gatherings of more than 50 people until the middle of next year. So, I mean, there are signs out there that this is going to take a long, long time before it gets uh, to back to normal, whatever normal is. How dare you come on this show and be such an alarmist, David Dan? Uh, the unemployment claims uh, actually went down. Uh, you note in Unsanitized Today uh, to 5.2 million. That's down from 6.6 million the week before. Is that any kind of good good sign that I'm I'm not properly uh, crediting? Well, considering well? it's almost 10 times the number of unemployment uh, uh, first-time claims than that we've ever seen in recorded history, <laughs> no, I would not <laughs> see that, say that that's good news. You're talking about now... Uh, close to 23 million Americans mm-hmm. who have been put out of work since this outbreak began. Now, we have in place with the CARES Act a, a boost to unemployment insurance 
$600 a month extra, or $600 a week, I should mm-hmm. say, extra in people's paychecks or unemployment checks, mm-hmm. which is good. But, you know, the question then becomes, well, can people get through to the unemployment uh, uh, insurance lines in their states to actually get their claim in, get it approved, get it processed, and get it through? Uh, this is an, a historic number of claims. These, uh, these state systems are not built to take so many claims, and I feel like uh, we're going to start hearing about millions of people falling through the cracks mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and of course, uh, with this uh, uh, Paycheck Protection Program now running out of money, I think we're going to see even more uh, people trying to get through to those lines. Uh, I, I won't be surprised if those uh, unemployment numbers actually go up in the weeks ahead. Um, and all right, well, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about your new scoop regarding uh, what banks are now doing with some of these $1,200 payments in their customers' bank accounts. You previously reported that some banks are garnishing those checks for debt payments, uh, as the New York Times picked up, but now you found that uh, <laughs> one of the top banks servicing the nation's veterans was also taking the money from disabled veterans and their families. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, so we reported today that USAA, which is a veteran-serving uh, uh, organization, mm-hmm. uh, most of the members, 13 million members, are active military or, or veterans of some sort. Uh, they uh, had a policy that they would take these uh, CARES Act payments, the $1,200 checks, and they would reduce them if that individual had an existing negative balance at the bank. Uh, and they were doing this over and over again. I talked to uh, a woman uh, who uh, her husband was injured while serving, mm-hmm. so he's on disability. She was a daycare worker who was laid off because of the crisis. They have two young children, and they were eligible for $3,400 in CARES Act payments, 1200 for each mm-hmm. spouse and 500 for each child. And uh, they had a bank account with USAA. They uh, hit some rough times in 2018. They, they uh, incurred a couple debts on that account. And then also they claimed to have uh, experienced fraud on the account, which USAA said was not fraud and uh, uh, made them liable for the entire balance. They had about $8,000 in arrears on mm-hmm. that account. They abandoned the account. So they no longer bank with USAA. They had mm-hmm. not had access to that ca- account in a year. They now bank with a community bank in uh, the Minneapolis area. However, the IRS had the USAA account listed as what they used to get direct deposit for their refund in 2018. Mm-hmm. So the IRS sent the $3,400 to the USAA account. And USAA said, hey... Look at this money on this account that they had uh, charged off. And that right. is an, a, an accounting term that means USAA said, we're never going to collect from this. Mm-hmm. They closed the account. We're, we're never going to get any money from this. But then money fell from the sky, or more appropriately from the IRS, this $3,400, and USAA just decided to take it. Now, stole this, it. They stole the money. They stole the money. This couple... Uh, needed that money for rent, for medicine, for one of the children. Uh, they, they were scrambling, didn't really know what they were going to do without uh-huh. this money. 
they called in the USAA, said, uh, because you can track on the IRS website where mm-hmm. it went. They found out it went to USAA. They called USAA. USAA, the representative, told them, well, you shouldn't have gotten into debt in the first place. <laughs> Jesus. And uh, and told them, yeah, we we take that money to cover negative balances uh, if 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 that's indeed what you have. And so this family was uh, at the end of their rope, and they contacted me. They actually also contacted the New York Times, and, uh-huh. uh, and we both reported on it today. Now, and uh, there has been an update to the yeah, story as, since as, your reporting. As a result of that reporting, and it wasn't just this family, by the way. Yeah. I, I, we found numerous instances of USAA doing this, and as recently as this morning, they were telling customers that this is their policy. However, uh, early this afternoon, I received an email from USAA who said that they changed their policy um, uh, and the, that they would now not, uh, they would pause any kind of charges on these payments for 90 days. In other words, if you, you know, spent the money in 90 mm-hmm. days, the, you, you wouldn't get charged at all. And they said, retroactively, we will credit the accounts of all people who, who we took money from mm. uh, previously. Uh, now, it's a bit unclear what's happening with, with the, the, the family that I profiled today, mm-hmm. because they had a closed account, right? They right. had a charged-off account. Uh, USA told me that they are working on figuring out a solution for that. Uh, they could obviously just mail the money over yes. to uh, the, the family, or they could send it back to the IRS and have the IRS mail the check with Donald Trump's name on it. Yes. Uh, but uh, they will figure out a solution, oh. and we'll continue to watch that. Well, take your time. It's only a disabled vet and his family who has a negative bank account uh, amount. Uh, right. No rush. Right. Uh, well, A, uh, thank you for that reporting that seems to have made at least uh, some difference to a whole bunch of people at that bank. It does seem like it depends which bank you uh, you choose well, to bank in. Yeah. This is the thing, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of people at a lot of different banks where this is happening to. And, you know, I'll continue to report on that bank by bank. But, you know, there are 5,000 banks in this country. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to take a while for me to just sort of work through them all. The, the solution here, the obvious solution, is to have the Treasury Department flag these payments and say that these payments are federal benefits intended in an emergency to go towards food and medicine and necessities for individuals, and no private or public debt collector can take them. And they can do that. They have the ability to do that under the CARES Act to write a regulation that flags these payments and makes and protects them. In fact, the CARES Act did that for uh, debt collection where a federal or state agency is owed money. That federal or state agencies cannot take this payment uh, under, under the CARES Act unless it's for a federal uh, or state child support payment. But they did not extend that in the CARES Act to uh, private debt collectors or to this situation with banks. So this was, I think, a full-spectrum failure. Congress did not write explicitly in the law protecting Mm -hmm. these payments from all sources of financial predators who might want them. And uh, the Treasury Department has the ability and has known for weeks that uh, this was a potentiality. Uh, They could have protected these payments. They chose not to do so. And then banks had the discretion of whether or not to to do this to their customers. And 
as we're seeing, many of them chose to do so. Yep. So, uh, you know, this was a failure on all levels. Yeah, and because they could have, Congress could have mandated that. They didn't. The administration could then have mandated it with a regulation. They didn't, which sort of brings me to uh, another uh, scoop you've got in today's Unsanitized at Prospect.org. Um this uh, is from the, uh, well, you said that the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, <laughs> their role in the administration not invoking the Defense Production Act, which would allow the federal government essentially to force companies like 3M and Honeywell to produce personal protective uh, equipment, uh, such as, you know, N95 masks for distrib- uh, distribution to our nation's hospitals, Um there is a new report out on that that you obtained suggesting that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had a role or has a role in the administration not invoking the uh, the DPA. And this yeah. comes to mind, of course, because we're talking about, well, why didn't they do this with the PPP? Was there influence from a group like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that was saying, hey, no, leave the banks, let the banks do what they want, because the banks are all part of that uh, Chamber of Commerce as well. Sure. Uh, but so what, what did you uh, learn, what do we learn uh, from this uh, new report called Unmasked regarding yeah. the Chamber of Commerce? Yeah, so um, the, we know from, from reporting, we don't have the, the actual lobbying disclosures yet, but we know from reporting that the Chamber has lobbied the Trump administration against invoking the Defense Production Act uh, for the simple reason that companies make less money when they have to contract with the government as opposed to contracting with the private sector. Uh, and, you know, two of the biggest beneficiaries of that, as you mentioned, are Honeywell and 3M, who are medical manufacturers of, of medical supplies. 3M does you know, many of the N95 masks, mm-hmm. and Honeywell does a lot of ventilators. Uh, it turns out that the Chamber of Commerce has a board of directors, which is pretty much the body that sets policy for the Chamber of Commerce. There are about 100 or so executives on that board. And 3M and Honeywell both have a board seat on the board mm-hmm. of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the, the 3M representative on that board handles supply chains and manufacturing management for mm-hmm. uh, 3M. The Honeywell rep is the top lobbyist at the company. That's who sits on the board of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it's even the case that there is a conference room in the Washington headquarters of the Chamber of Commerce named after 3M. <laughs> Of course. So, you know, what we're seeing is that 3M and Honeywell certainly have access to the highest levels of the Chamber of Commerce and the policy-setting organization within that body. And we know that the Chamber of Commerce lobbied, you know, uh, in, in, in conjunction with the interests of 3M and Honeywell yep. to not invoke the Defense Production Act. So put two and two together, yeah. and you have, uh, you know, the chamber essentially, uh, uh, you know, w- working on behalf of the interests of the companies with the biggest financial stake in uh, a pandemic response. And uh, let me sort of underscore some of the leverage that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has. I, I want to note, uh, because, uh, you know, I, it, it, U.S. Chamber of Commerce is, I believe, the top private 
lobbying organization and campaign contributor in the country. And almost all of the money that they give uh, for campaigns goes to the Republican Party and their candidates. It is not a, you know, not a public federal agency, as I think many people may still incorrectly believe, because it's got a name like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. This is a private right wing lobbying organization, and they pay a lot of money to a lot of Republicans, uh, which is a lot of leverage in a moment like this and might very well explain Trump's uh, reticence to use the uh, DPA, the Defense Production Act, almost at all throughout this crisis. Is that the uh, two plus two that you're talking about adding together there? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, it it just happens to be that many of the firms who uh, are on this, this board of directors of the Chamber of Commerce happen to be on the front lines Mm -hmm. of this crisis. FedEx and UPS, for example, who are top shippers. And, you know, looky here, the the Trump administration won't give a bailout to the Postal Service. Who's that going to help? (laughs) FedEx and UPS. Uh, Pharmaceutical firms like Abbott Labs and Pfizer have board seats at the Chamber of Commerce. Obviously, uh, we're racing towards a vaccine and, and the, the way in which that will be structured and whether that will be a profit-making uh, tool for these uh, companies as well as testing kits. Uh, that's going to be important. And so, you know, the chamber would have an interest there. Uh, there's a company called Steward Healthcare, which uh, uh, recently just sort of blackmailed the state of Pennsylvania into getting a bailout for one of its hospitals, saying that they were going to close down this hospital in the middle of the pandemic if they didn't get $8 million, and they got it. Uh, They have a board seat on on, uh, the uh, Chamber of Commerce board. The top airlines in the country, United, American, and Delta, who all just got bailed out by uh, the Treasury Department in a a special carve-out, they have seats on the Chamber of Commerce board. So this is a very powerful organization yep. that happens to intersect with the front lines of this crisis. Yeah, we often say follow the money. And I'll tell you what, in all the years I've been doing this, and I know you've been doing this, so often when we follow the money, it leads straight back to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It's amazing. Uh, in, in crisis after crisis. Finally, David, may, maybe, I don't know, maybe here's some good news we can we can leave you with here today. Uh, with, you know, these retail numbers that uh, plummeted in that report we saw on Wednesday. As that was being reported, I saw uh, quite a few reports that cited how crucial consumer spending is to our economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, about two-thirds of our economy, essentially, uh, made up of consumer spending. I sort of thought that was a, a welcome rebuttal to the, you know, the businesses are our, our, our job creators myth, that, you know, mm-hmm. that they're the real spine of our economy uh, that we've heard for so many years. Will that outlook change uh, now, uh, thanks to what so many Americans are now seeing in reports like this, showing that, hey, because consumers aren't spending, the economy is collapsing? Right. And I mean, you know, the obviously what what flows from that is you need to give uh, consumers uh, who are also workers the wherewithal to be able to spend, Mm -hmm. uh, which means they need they need higher wages. I do think that the reason that consumer spending is two thirds of the U.S. economy and that we're a service oriented economy right now is because we've hollowed out our industrial base over decades, Mm. shipping, uh, shipping and outsourcing manufacturing jobs to China and what have you. And we're now seeing within this crisis the, the fatal flaw in that approach. Yep. 
that if you centralize your supply chains all in one part of the world and that part of the world has a superior supply shock, yeah. then you're not self-sufficient at home to be able to, to construct the materials that you need to survive. So uh, I think you're going to see a lot more onshoring. I think you're going to see more manufacturing activity in this country. I think the people in Washington do understand this to some degree, and I think companies certainly get it and understand it. And so, you know, that, that could be very interesting to see manufacturing jobs come back at least to North America, if not to America, to shorten that supply chain or, or make it more diverse so that there's resiliency and self-sufficiency within it and not the hidden risk that we had been living with for decades that only caught up to us now. Well, I hope that does happen. We'll have to run that through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, however, and make sure they're cool with that. That's right. David Dayen, uh, you can find his unsanitized column every day at the American Prospect, which is at prospect.org. You can and should follow him on the Twitters at ddayen. And, of course, uh, hopefully you will be following him here on the broadcast in the days ahead as we continue to check in with him and his crucial work. David Dayen, uh, oh, also, uh, people should buy your book, the uh, Chain of Title, 2016's book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street great foreclosure fraud just to give you an idea of what happened the last time we faced a crisis like this which is probably gonna look rather pleasant and like a picnic compared to I, what I we're should facing add, Brad, yeah. that, uh, i have a book coming out in july oh called you do monopolize life in the age of corporate power yeah which also has resonance for this moment it does talk about things like how do we get our medical supplies and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the large, uh, overwhelming power of companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google. So uh, I, I, I do think it's appropriate for this moment as well, even though it was written well before it. And so that will be uh, out in July. Can we pre-order it now? You can pre-order it now wherever you get books. Where? Books. Where? Where? Say it, David. Where can yeah. we order it? IndieBound, Pals Books, uh, anywhere that you order books uh-huh. that is not named Amazon. Okay, there you, you can go. Order it. There you go. Although you could probably get it at Amazon, too. You can I get suspect. it there, too, but yeah. I don't know why you would want to. There you go. Uh, hey, thank you, David Day, and I hope to talk to you soon, my friend. Hang in there, brother. Okay, thanks. You bet. Okay, quick break here, and we'll come back with some uh, marginally better news, oh, I think, <laughs> uh, regarding vo- Well, don't say good yet, because it regards voting and the state of Texas, Wait. your home state, Desi Doyen. Uh, anyway, believe it or not, good news from Texas. Yes, uh, for now, anyway. Straight ahead on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. Yes, they are. Welcome the back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Uh, so while we have been trying to keep uh, up with the general fallout from the pandemic, we, yes, continue to keep our eyes on what I believe is ultimately our only real way out of this disaster. And that, of course, is the critical general election still slated for November 3rd this year. Uh, in many ways at this point, little matter matters more, it seems to me. Because if you think these past three and a half years have been nightmarish, you ain't seen nothing yet if Trump is granted another four years, along with continuing control of the U.S. Senate and likely as many as uh, two more liberals replaced with right-wingers on our U.S. Supreme Court now. You think five to four at SCOTUS is bad now? Just wait until seven to two if Donald Trump is reelected. So, yeah, we will continue to focus on elections this year for quite some time. And there has been uh, quite a bit of news in that regard in recent days. We've been trying to get caught up on it as best we can, including some important news uh, out of Texas. On Tuesday of this week, on the stationery of a Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, Deputy Attorney General Ryan Vassar wrote a letter to Republican Texas State Rep Stephanie Click. She serves as the chair of the Committee on Elections in the Texas House of Representatives. Uh, she had sought legal advice from the attorney general's office. So uh, Vassar writes, Dear Chairwoman Click, you have asked us for guidance on whether a qualified voter who wishes to avoid voting in person because the voter fears contracting COVID-19 may claim a disability entitling the voter to receive a ballot by mail. We conclude that, based on the plain language of the relevant statutory text, fear of contracting COVID-19 does not constitute a disability under the election code for purposes of receiving a ballot by mail. A reasonable fear of contracting the virus is a normal emotional reaction to the current pandemic, he writes, and does not by itself amount to a sickness, much less the type of sickness that qualifies a voter to vote uh, a mail-in ballot under Texas election code. The legislature has allowed voters having a physical condition that prevents them from appearing at the polling place without assistance or without injury to their health to vote by mail. But a physical condition is an illness or medical problem relating to the body as opposed to the mind. To the extent that a fear of contracting COVID-19 without more could be described as a condition, it would at most amount to a mental or emotional condition and not a physical condition as required by the legislature to vote by mail. It's all in your head. Thus, an individual's fear of contracting COVID-19 is not by itself sufficient to meet the definition of disability for purposes of eligibility to vote a mail-in ballot. Uh, and Vassar goes on to add, finally, to the extent third parties advise voters to apply for a mail-in ballot based solely on a fear of contracting covid such activity could subject those third parties to criminal sanctions imposed by the election code. Yeah, so uh, not only does the AG's office believe it's unlawful to request an absentee ballot in Texas to avoid becoming sick and potentially dead by voting at the polls in Texas during a pandemic, anyone who advises a voter to do as much could be held criminally liable for doing so according to the Texas AG. This is how much the Texas AG does not want you to vote. That's correct. Now, thankfully, 
Just after we got off air, I said I promised this would be good news, right? Mm -hmm. Just after we got off air uh, last night, news broke from a state court judge who sees it very differently, according to the breaking news coverage from Angela Morris over at Law.com. She writes, Travis County voters who are afraid of contracting COVID-19 if they go to the polls can legally apply for mail-in ballots under a ruling that a district judge issued Wednesday in a lawsuit filed by the Texas Democratic Party with plaintiffs including League of Women Voters of Texas, Move Texas, League of Women Voters of Austin, Workers' Defense Action Fund, and University of Texas student Zach Price. The dispute, which asks whether all Texans should be able to vote by mail because of social distancing restrictions, and the risk of contracting the coronavirus was headed to a higher court. But acknowledging that, Judge Tim Sulak, a district court judge, ruled from the bench that he would grant a temporary injunction and reject jurisdictional arguments presented by the state of Texas. Judge Sulak said that if voters didn't get clarity on whether the Texas vote-by-mail law applied to them, they might face a choice of having to vote in person and accept the risk of getting sick. Or they could try to apply for a mail-in ballot. However, if the government later found their mail-in ballot inappropriate, voters could then face prosecution or find that their ballot was not counted, according to the judge. Uh, also, if uh, Judge Sulak didn't grant relief, he said there was a risk of future conflicts involving candidates filing election contests to challenge the voting results. Some of that, he said, could lead to the unstable, unsettled, uncertain situation about who our elected representatives are. Especially now that we are in the in this disaster scenario where we don't have courts running as efficiently as they have previously, it could result in some very serious governance issues, very serious jurisprud uh, jurisprudential issues. The lawsuit centers around a part of the Texas Election Code that allows mail-in voting for a voter with a disability who has a sickness or physical condition that stops him or her from going to the polls without getting help or injuring the voter's health. And that's kind of key here. Uh, the yeah. idea that this could, you know, that uh, you if, if you have to go without help or fear of injuring the voters' health. Well, you could certainly get injured at this rate going to the polls to vote I know, it's in the middle of a pandemic. Obviously, this is so obvious and logical <laughs> that it's, it's rather shocking, even for Texas, that it was even a question. Even for Texas. Well, it's still a question. Uh, in any event, plaintiffs argued this should apply to all Texas voters who are social distancing, all people do have a physical condition, they argued. In this case, a respiratory system that could be infected by COVID-19 and going to the polls in person presents a health threat. The plaintiffs sought an injunction that would require the defendants to accept and tabulate mail-in ballots from voters who are practicing social distancing, distancing to stop the spread of the virus. So listen... If you're not uh, concerned, if you have no fear of your uh, injuring your health, you're more than welcome to go to the polls. But if, yeah, if you have no respiratory system, then you can. <laughs> right. You've got no problem. Yeah, you don't have to worry. 
On the other hand, the state of Texas, which intervened here as a defendant because, of course, they did. They argued that the court did not have the jurisdiction to make this decision at all. It was a separation of powers issue. The state claimed that a voter wouldn't qualify to vote by mail just from having a fear of contracting the coronavirus. And also they argued that the claim was not ripe since no one knows if the contagion will still be present in July when the primary runoff elections are scheduled. So no rush. It's too early to decide this case. Who knows if we may we may be done with covid and coronavirus entirely by July. And of course, what then would happen is if it rolls around again in September and November, they can just say it's too late now to take any kind of intervention to change the laws as per the Supreme Court's Purcell principle. Right. You can't do it. We got an election coming up. We got to stick with whatever it is, no matter how many people it kills. Am I right, Wisconsin? However, uh, during a hearing on Wednesday on uh, the application for the restraining order here, an infectious disease epidemiologist who testified for the plaintiff said it is highly unli- uh, highly likely that the coronavirus will, yes, continue to spread in Texas throughout the summer. Kathy Troisi uh, of the University of Texas said once social distancing guidelines are relaxed, in my expert opinion, it's inevitable we will see a rise in cases. Voters going to the polls will be at risk of infection because they'll come into close contact with other people and they'll touch voting machines that many voters have touched. She explained election workers would be at an even higher risk because they'll be staying at the polls all day and have contact with many more people. Voting by mail, she said, would protect the public health and public safety of Texans. Now, the judge in response said, I respect the separation of powers, but we've got a choice here between arguments from the uh, from that perspective and arguments from something that has seminal fundamental individual constitutional rights that is free people making full choices and having full access to have choices about their government so uh he wasn't buying it and he said you know if we uh, if we don't allow this then people will lose their individual constitutional rights to be free and to decide whether they want to go risk their lives by voting at the polls or vote safely from home. Uh, the ACLU representing the plaintiffs in this case, they released the statement after the judge delivered his uh, order from the bench. Sophia Lynn Lakin, the deputy director of ACLU's voting project, said the court recognized the gravity of not allowing all eligible voters to have mail-in option during the pandemic. It is a common sense solution to protect democracy and people's well-being during this public health crisis. Thomas Buser Clancy, who presented uh, oral argument on uh, on behalf of the ACLU of Texas, said we're grateful for the judge's decision issuing a temporary order that permits all Texans to vote by mail based on the COVID-19 pandemic. As our local and state leaders work with public health experts to handle the COVID crisis, we are appreciative of this step forward in clarifying the law in a manner that will permit all Texans to exercise their fundamental right to vote during this extreme time without jeopardizing their health. But Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, 
who uh, had issued that letter just uh, before Sulak's ruling said that fear of COVID-19 did not count as a disability under the mail-in voting law. Uh, He wrote a statement that mail-in ballots are supposed to be reserved for people who are physically ill and can't vote in person. The integrity of our democratic election process must be maintained and law established by our legislature must be followed consistently, said Paxton, who has been um, charged, by the way, with several felony counts for securities fraud. But in any event, he's worried about the integrity of our democratic election process that would not be maintained if just anyone gets to vote by mail. So, yes, uh, this case will almost certainly be appealed to a higher court for now. However, we've got a reasonable decision from a reasonable judge in Texas. I hope that the rest of the judges in Texas who may review this case will be as reasonable, though I am not holding my breath. It is Texas, after all. Yeah, and even if voters who are forced to vote at the polls in Texas this year may be forced to do exactly that, to hold their breath while they vote, for Christ's sake. Uh, In any event, these are the positions that you should expect to see in the coming days and weeks and months as Republicans fight to suppress the vote by forcing voters to choose between risking their lives to vote and having their votes suppressed by refusing any way that they can to allow them to vote at home safely with an absentee ballot. Now, the stakes were high before the pandemic. They were as high as they have ever been for an election in this country, in my opinion. And now they are much, much higher as the act of voting, if it's up to at least some Republicans this year, may actually come with the risk of dying to do so. Anyway, more, much more on that fight in the days ahead. But for now, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with, uh, once again, nothing but good news to keep you (laughs) cheered during your pandemic crisis. But that was good news in in your home state of Texas for a few minutes, right, Des? Indeed it was. I hope it lasts. Uh, Yeah, well, you think it won't? 
You think it'll? There's always a chance. Yeah. Well, it's Texas, so yeah. there's always a um, likelihood. I'm sorry yep. to say, but I hope I'm wrong. Hope I'm wrong. Me too. But you're never wrong, <laughs> as we discover in your latest Green News report. Virginia lawmakers and environmental groups are making a push to change the Commonwealth's reliance on fossil fuels. Virginia becomes first Southern state to target 100% clean energy. As coronavirus rages... Trump rages too? As coronavirus rages, Trump EPA refuses to tighten clean air rules. Oh. Plus... There's no one who wants this thing over more than I do. You know, I'd like my life back. Ten years later, the BP oil disaster in the Gulf is still harming marine life. All of those disasters and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Now our only effort to combat climate change is everyone collectively hoarding plastic bags under their kitchen sinks. The trick is to stuff the small plastic bags into the big plastic bags until they're so stressful to look at, you just give up and throw them directly into the ocean. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump said this recently, and I challenge you to prove that he is wrong. Our carbon, our our atmosphere, our the level of environmental cleanliness is at its all-time best right now. All-time best. See, all-time best, environmental cleanliness. All he had to do was ignore a global pandemic, wait for tens of thousands of people to die, and poof, climate change is over. Yeah, it's not, though, but you do kind of have a point. Thank you. In related news, another hit to public health from the Trump Environmental Protection Agency. Trump EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler on Tuesday announced the agency will not update the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for Particle Pollution. Sounds bad. What does that mean? That requires polluters to reduce soot, microscopic airborne particles produced from burning coal and other industrial practices. Research shows that soot lodges deep in the heart and lungs, causing diseases and premature death. The scientific community and the EPA's own scientists warned that the current standards for particle pollution are not good enough to protect public health, but Wheeler called that mountain of evidence uncertain. The EPA's own scientists estimate that soot pollution kills more than 50,000 Americans every year. New research has found that exposure to even slightly higher levels of air pollution sharply increases the risk of dying from COVID-19, particularly in communities of color, which also happen to be where polluting industries are disproportionately located. Naturally. So thousands of Americans are going to die every year prematurely, unnecessarily, all so polluting industries can save a few dollars. You say that like it's a bad thing. It is, because the Trump administration is failing to act to protect Americans when the scientific data clearly shows necessity. You say that like you're surprised. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Yep. In other news, April 20th marks the 10th anniversary of the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. Happy anniversary. Eleven men were killed and dozens injured when BP's Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig exploded, causing the largest offshore oil spill in U.S. history. The rig collapsed into the ocean two days later on Earth Day. More than 200,000 gallons of crude oil spilled into the Gulf of Mexico over five months, killing tens of thousands of birds, dolphins, and other marine 
marine life and decimating the Gulf Coast's tourism and fishing industries. The root cause of the disaster was BP's cost-cutting and corporate culture of profits over people. BP ultimately paid more than $18 billion in fines, the largest corporate settlement in U.S. history. But the ecological and economic consequences of the disaster live on. In a new study out this week, University of South Florida marine scientists say they are still finding oil in fish populations. Mm. And Texas A&M researchers this week warned that another major offshore spill is inevitable because instead of strengthening regulations and oversight, the Trump administration instead has weakened offshore drilling safeguards and other protections that were put in place by the Obama administration after the BP catastrophe. Because, of course, they have. What could possibly go wrong? However, as we approach the 50th anniversary of Earth Day on April 22nd... Happy anniversary! There is some good news. In Virginia, Democratic Governor Ralph Northam this week signed the Virginia Clean Economy Act, making Virginia the first southern U.S. state to set a goal of 100% zero-carbon electricity by 2050. The law expands the state's offshore wind portfolio, requires nearly all of the state's coal-fired power plants to close in four years and joins the Northeast's Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, a carbon cap and trade program that has raised billions by putting a price on carbon pollution. Pretty cool, but Virginia is not a state. It's a commonwealth. Too pedantic? Finally, new renewable energy capacity hit record levels globally in 2019. According to the International Renewable Energy Agency, last year, three-quarters of all new electricity generation built around the world was 100% clean energy. Solar, wind, and other zero-carbon technologies now provide more than one-third of the world's electricity. That is a record, and it's a huge shift that was almost inconceivable when BP's oil rig blew up 10 years ago. For much more on all of these stories and the many we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Because these things will change. They will change, right? Yes, they will. They better change. They're changing already, and you're right. Ten years ago, when we first covered the uh, BP oil spill on this show, it was. It was inconceivable that we would be looking at all of this renewable energy now as, uh, I mean, what did you say, two-thirds, three-quarters? Of of all new electricity generation, yeah. So, yes, the truth is that things will change, and none of this is set in stone, so... If we keep looking forward, then I think that there is a chance we can make positive change. I remember being on the air with Mark Marano, Rush Limbaugh's climate advisor at the time, telling uh, you and I, Desi Doyen, that uh, these wind and solar was a boutique energy. <laughs> It'll never hold up. You'll never <laughs> use... Surprise! Anyway, how things have changed. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to David Dayan of The American Prospect, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at brandblog.com. And as ever, our thanks throughout this pandemic to those of you who can afford to help us continue to stay on your public airwaves, at least through this election, by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you will find, follow, and share all that uh, I do on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Who was the night they-
Fell down, it's a revolution 